Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. And when I'm not buzzing around doing podcasts with these amazing people, I'm leading the charge and I'd like to call myself a fierce champion of sleep-deprived and newborn mamas. I'm a postpartum doula at Fill Your Cup which essentially is a doula village which uh, resides across Australia in Hobart and Melbourne and newly expanding into Sydney and Brisbane this year. We're very excited about that. And so as postpartum doulas, we love to nourish and nurture newborn mamas and their families If you are keen to learn more about what we offer as postpartum doulas, so think about mm, holding your baby while you go and nap, making you beautiful, nourishing meals while you go for a walk around the block and have some me time, or it could be waking up from your two-hour sleep with a beautiful hot lunch that you can eat with both hands because we're going to be holding Bubby for you to make sure that they feel safe and that they are nurtured as well. If that sounds like crazy magic to you, I assure you it's not. That could be your reality. So it doesn't matter whether you have got a bun in the oven or you are 10 days, 10 months, or 10 years postpartum, postpartum is for life. If you need an extra pair of hands, if you want to lean on someone and just have a chat and be listened and to and heard, then a postpartum doula is for you. If you'd like to learn more about our offerings, head over to ifillyourcup.com, book in a chat with me, and we can talk about how we can support you during your postpartum. So in today's episode, we actually have two guests, which is a bit of a rarity for us, but it was absolutely necessary because we are going to be talking to Lael Stone and Marion Rose about their new book called Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children. And if you are a longtime listener of um, The Science of Motherhood, you will know how passionate I am about this particular topic. I love people like um, Gabor Mate and Dr. Dan Siegel and how they talk about, you know, raising children and I guess the psychology behind all of that and how as parents we kind of have to, it's in our hands. We shape the children to the people that they are. 
So as way of a bit of introduction, if you have not heard about Lael and Marion, I will let you know a few things about them. So Lael Stone is just an incredible human being. I actually found out about her through my dear friend, Katie Parker. Katie, if you are listening, (laughs) thank you, thank you, thank you for that introduction. Lael is a speaker educator and author she has given some great TED talks around um, this exact topic in particular she talks about emotional awareness helping children to thrive building resilience talking to your kids about sex connected parenting healing our wounds understanding trauma and creating new paradigms in education so my goodness, (laughs) this woman does it all. She also, I guess, you know, in years previous, there was times where she was a doula, a calm birth practitioner, postnatal trauma counsellor. She works with her lovely husband in creating what is known as the About Birth online education program. So if you're interested in some birth education, she's there, sex education. And I guess her primary focus at the moment is aware parenting. And she's been an aware parenting instructor for eight years. And over those years, she's run regular groups for mums to connect and share their parenting stories. It's so important that as mothers, and it has been shown by the research, this is one of the things that we absolutely need as mothers to thrive is sharing experiences. It is a need. It's not about gossiping and like, you know, meeting up for like a coffee and a chat or whatever it is. We are wired such that that is one of the things that needs to be ticked in order for us to thrive. How much, how much better, and I can attest to this, when you went to a mother's group or you met someone for coffee or someone called you in those newborn days when it was just so hard, and I say this in other podcasts, it's such a, I guess for me, like a hit to the ego when I was freshly postpartum to have an opportunity where you are with another human being 24-7, that being your baby, so there's another human being right there with you the whole time. Yet I have never felt so lonely in my life as when I did in my um, postpartum. And that is because we are wired to need that social interaction, community, communication. We need all of it. And so Lael, obviously, as I said, was an aware parenting instructor and and that's kind of the link between her and Marion. So Marion Rose has been studying psychology and consciousness since 1987. This woman knows her stuff. She has a PhD on postnatal depression and the mother-infant relationship from the prestigious Cambridge University. She researched infant development as a postdoctoral research fellow and has been practising aware parenting since 2002. And she's also a mum of a daughter and a son. 
She has been an aware parenting instructor since 2005 and is a level two instructor and the regional coordinator for Australia and New Zealand. So if you have a question around aware parenting, Marion is your girl. These two ladies are also the co-hosts of the Aware Parenting podcast and Marion also hosts her own podcast, the Psychospiritual Podcast. So as I said in the beginning, we are here to talk about their new book, Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children. In the episode, you are going to hear about how I deep dive into this book. We talk about what aware parenting is, how we can kind of restore balance in our children when things are kind of getting out of hand and what that looks like for families and and children. And I guess walking us through how we actually make our children resilient and compassionate at the same time. It's such a wonderful discussion that we had. I learned so much about this. It, as I said, it's a topic that I love to learn more and more and more about because I'm a firm believer that a lot of our children's wiring is, I guess, laid down in those first seven years of their lives. And so if we invest in those early and kind of, um, you know, foundation years, I feel like, and I'm hoping (laughs) that it will be easier in the long run in terms of how they're going to deal with more complex issues when they become more independent and they don't have us, you know, by their sides. So without further ado, here is Lael Stone and Marion Rose. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Lael and Marion. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having us. Mm, so well, thank now, you. Now, ladies, we have got you on the podcast today because of this amazing book that I'm holding up. So for all the listeners, you won't be able to see this, but it is Lael and Marion's. This is your first book, yes, right? First book. It's called Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children, which. For all those who are long-time listeners, um, you will know that I'm very, very passionate about this topic. I am a huge fan of people like Dan Siegel who delve into the minds of the little people and help us explain all the big emotions and feelings that they're going through and how we can best support them. And I finally got my hands on this book. I, I have to say that because I'm in Tassie, it is like snail mail exponential here. <laughs> I, I, it takes me a long time to get books and I almost didn't get this in time for this interview, but I speed read it over the past few days and it is dynamite. Some of the things I'm just going to say off the bat, uh, I love the fact that you've included examples in there of, you know, obviously they're not real scenarios people's names have been redacted or like changed and things like that but I think that's one of the things that I really loved about this book real life scenarios of like this is what the child did this is the reaction with the parents this is what can happen this is how we should be kind of moving forward with with putting this together who wants to go first what was 
the motivation around putting this all together in a book? Uh, I love when Marin and I do interviews together. We'd like just point at each other to go, you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, it, look, we Marin and I joke that we don't know how the book came about. It's a bit like how we don't know how our podcast came about because one day we were obviously talking about a podcast and the next minute we were recording it. So we can't remember who had the idea. <laughs> and I think it was the same with the book. I think we we'd, our podcast was doing really well. We had lots of people listening and I, we just were like, well, hey, why don't we turn it into a book? Because we've got, you know, together collectively, I don't know, 40 plus years of experience of working with families and from, you know, babies all the way up to teens. And and so we we thought, well, why don't we bring this, you know, this beautiful balance together? Oh, exactly. You're saying a storytelling, you know, I love to tell stories around how families look. And Marion has got the most beautiful insights of theory and understanding how human behavior works. And so we thought, let's blend it together, both our voices together to make the book. And it was actually a pretty easy beautiful seamless process until the end part where we had to do all the editing and all that hard part (laughs) (laughs) that didn't feel seamless but that wasn't about us but um it was actually a beautiful collaboration and easy to write together because I think we both knew what we did well and what you know how we love to express this information so it actually was a really joyous experience to have together oh that's amazing and so how do you guys know each other? How did that relationship first start? Was that through aware parenting? Is that right? Um, yeah, it was through aware parenting. I think it came through, um, well, me being in great distress of parenting my children. So yeah. I only came to aware parenting when my son was um, nearly eight and then my middle daughter was four and a half and then I just had a baby and I had a, a really challenging, quite traumatic birth experience with her and I knew enough to know that we'd probably both had trauma and needed some support. And so then I came across Aletha Salter's book, which is what aware parenting is about, her book, The Aware baby and read that and just was like, wow, this is, you know, this is everything I've been looking for. And so I I didn't know anybody else who was doing it. And so I was kind of muddling along. And then I think probably when my daughter was about a year old or something like that, I I was like, oh, I'm really stuck now and searched to try and find someone to talk to. And then Marion's name came up and then, you know, she gave me some beautiful mentoring and support. And then I think maybe if a few years after that, she was wanting to run workshops and I was like, come to Melbourne. I'll make workshops happen. And she came down to <laughs> Melbourne and we started running workshops. And, you know, she was like, Leo, you should become an instructor. And I was working in birth at the time. So I was like, no, 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 I'm too busy with that. And then it all just kind of evolved from there. So really Marion started just as my beautiful mentor and guide because she'd been doing this for such a long time and she has such beautiful knowledge and insight into this work. So she was really a guide for me. And then we just connected and we're like, ah, let's see what we can make together. So that's kind of how it, it the relationship came about. That's amazing. I love that when two worlds collide and it's, you just get like that synergistic effect, I find, like the sum of the parts is more at the end. Marion, what is aware parenting for all the listeners at home who are like, oh, what is this concept? And and maybe they would be, they're seeking answers exactly how Lael was in her moments of distress. Mm, so as Lael said, it is created by the founder, who's Aletha Salter, PhD. So she is a developmental psychologist in California. And so she developed this beautiful aware parenting that's based on three core aspects, which is uh, attachment style parenting first, 
The second is non-punitive discipline, so not using punishments and rewards. And instead, what we do in aware parenting is we really understand the cause of a child's behaviour. So when we look, Lael often talks about looking behind the behaviour. When we look behind the behaviour and we understand why children are doing what they're doing, we can then uh, really respond at that causal level. So then punishments and rewards aren't needed. Although, you know, of course, our own conditioning means that we might be tempted to use those sometimes. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is really one of the things that differentiates it from so many other paradigms, which is really about understanding the role of stress and trauma in children's behaviour, basically. So we're doing whatever we can to, to prevent and limit the amount of stress and trauma that they experience, but also understanding that all children, however much we aim to be the most calm, present, aware parents, will experience stress, mini traumas and trauma, you know, very frequently. And so what we do is to, we really support the um, these natural processes that all children have and actually babies are born with to be able to heal from stress and trauma. And that's through crying with loving support, raging, otherwise known as tantrums with loving support and something we call attachment play. So there's particular kinds of play. So basically understanding that we are all come into the world with these amazing capacities to heal. And what we can do as parents is really support that healing process. It's interesting that you touch on trauma and stress and that kind of attachment play because, you know, although I hate giving it airplay, but through those COVID lockdowns, you know, I was in Melbourne for two years and um, it's something that I definitely noticed my daughter was craving during those times, you know, that sense and loss of I guess her routine, you know, she was out of childcare. She wasn't able to visit her friends and go for play dates. And, and even when they took away the parks, you know, like that was, that was the peak <laughs> of trauma. You've officially taken away, you know, a really huge element of play for these children. And it's something that really played into the reason why we moved from Melbourne to Hobart because we could see the trauma and the stress that it was, you know, it was occurring within, she was uh, three and a half to, to four and a half. And when she was home all the time, it was that constant need for her to play. That was her, that was her outlet. And so we started doing a lot of role play games as well. And it's interesting, I spoke to a, a child developmental psychologist about it and she was talking about the fact that you need to let them do power play as if like they're in charge of you. And so <laughs> we did these games where she was um, she was the guest at the hotel and I was the butler. <laughs> so we would play these games all the time where she got to boss me around because that was her way of of kind of expressing that she was a completely out of control and this was how she was going to deal with it. Mm. Um, do you guys have any comments on that or? Oh, I love all of that. <laughs> I mean, we in, in, you know, in aware parenting, we call that power reversal games. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing about play and what I love so much about this is that 
we always stand in this place where we really trust that children know what they need to do to heal or to find their way back into balance. So sometimes they will look for a limit to push up against so they can have a big release of feelings, you know, because they've they've been carrying something or holding onto it all day, or they'll know exactly what they need to play in order to process. So, you know, you, you gave that great example. For a lot of children in the last few years, they've felt deeply powerless because they haven't been able to do the things they want to do. So they then find ways to process that. And and we see that with children often say, if you want to know what's going on for a child, just watch them play. So like if a child is starting kindergarten perhaps or school or, you know, they're spending more time with grandparents or stuff like that, then they might want to play schools or kinders or they'll play the games that they need to play in order to process whatever's going on. And and also I guess where what we look at from an aware parenting lens is particularly around traumas that children will often play certain games to help them process trauma as well. I have a, a story I talk about my daughter broke her arm um and it was the third time she'd broken it and we had to have a lot of x-rays and it was a very even though I did a lot of listening it was a pretty big event and the day after or the, the day or two after she got her plaster off she wanted to play x-rays and really she set up this whole game in our lounge room with our you know clothes horse that usually hang the clothes on but all of a sudden the lights were on and it had all these lines on the ground and it looked like an x-ray machine and she set up this x-ray game and just played it for a whole week and everyone had to be x-rayed and she was in charge and I watched with just such awe at her beautiful inner knowing and process of what she needed to do to process this huge event that she went through. And then at the end of it, you know, after about a week, she's like, all right, packed it up and never played it again. Right. It was just like done. Yeah. I've processed what I needed to do through play. And I think this is where we can really come back to trusting our children's beautiful innate knowing of what they need to do to find their way back into balance. I, I often say that sometimes we just get in the way of that process. So it's that beautiful thing of being able to observe our children to watch what it is that they they need to do to heal I agree uh getting in the way of children so much so but it's such a I think even for myself you know it's breaking that cycle of you know that's not how we were parented and so you know some people are still in the philosophy of grown-ups know best children are there to be seen not heard and that you're in charge and you've got all the power play. I wanted to touch on a particular, I guess, phrase that you use throughout the book. You describe how children can be out of balance. Can you talk us through what's going on there when a child is out of balance? And then how can parents assist with kind of re-restoring that balance for their kids? Marion, do you want to talk about the beautiful reasons of why children might be out of balance? Yes, and I'd really love to acknowledge that's Lael's term, which is such a beautiful term and so easy to really remember and and just you can see that, can't you? Yeah. You can see when your child is either, they're either like calm or relaxed, they're present, they feel relaxed in their bodies, they make eye contact, and often that's what we talk about. You can really see when a child is present in their body or whether they've gone into more either dissociation or we call or hyperarousal. And we usually see that through their eye contact or their muscle yeah. tension. And those are the times where they're just, you know, they're wiggling around or they're, you know, they're, they're jumping up and down. It's often in the evening, they'll be kind of just jumping on the bed and like doing the opposite of what you ask or asking for 10,000 things or, you know, just all of those ways that we can really see that something's going on. And what we love in a way parent again, coming back to that deep trust that children actually come into the world with exactly what they need to heal. And as you both said, we're often working against that. And I often say that with sleep as well, that 
you may say a child's fighting sleep, but actually it's usually us who are fighting these natural relaxation processes that they actually come into the world with. So basically it's understanding that you can either look at it from a feelings perspective or a nervous system perspective. And if you look at it from a nervous system perspective, whenever a child experiences something that they experience as stressful, then they go into fight or flight, as we know, fight, flight or freeze. But not only do they do that, that's part of their amazing system, knowing what to do. They also afterwards will know how to release that those stress hormones and that tension. You know, basically, if you think about it, fight, they've got all this energy in their arms to fight and they've got all this energy in their legs to flee. But what happens after the stressful event's gone is all this energy is sitting in their bodies. And I think parents often inherently understand that when they often say, you know, my child needs to go and run around a lot. But what we talk about in aware parenting is it's not just a physical thing. It's an, it's an emotional thing as well. So basically children after being in these states will need to come out and to actually release the stress hormones and the feelings and actually the physical tension in their bodies. And if we talk about that from a feelings perspective, there's a little map that I like to talk about, which is uh, expression or repression or aggression. So basically they either release all those feelings through crying really loudly and vigorously with lots of body movement, or they rage and the tantrum. And again, with lots of physical movement and, you know, movement of the arms and legs, or they go into play as you beautifully talked about before. So this is the way they naturally release that emotional and physical tension from their bodies. If they don't get to do that, then those feelings get stored in their bodies. They're often needing to do things to repress those feelings, whether that's sucking a thumb or a dummy, eating food, watching screens, jumping up and down, wiggling around, um, twirling the hair, picking their nose. There's a bazillion ways that they repress their feelings, but then those feelings are sitting in their bodies. And then when they're like that, it's very hard for them to sleep or to cooperate or to concentrate or to do all the things that we find really helpful as parents. So when, the more we understand these processes, the more we can see, ah, if my child is suppressing their feelings or they are going to aggression, we know then how to help. And there's usually either one of two things we can do, which is we can either, well, naturally they might just start going into expression. They might start crying or raging and we just listen. We listen, we offer our loving presence. We say, you know, I'm here with you, I'm listening. Or if they're not actually moving into those feelings, if they're repressing the feelings, often we might do attachment play to support them to actually move from the suppression into the expression, which again might be through play, but then it might be through the tears or the tantrums. And if they're more in the aggression, so they're biting or hitting or throwing, what we offer in aware parenting is something called loving limits. So we're offering a loving limit, which is usually something like, I'm not willing for you to take, you know, throw all the books off the bookshelf and we might do the, the least possible physical thing to prevent them. And we hold that with a, and I'm here and I'm listening. So it's really, we're saying no to the behavior and yes to the feelings. I'm not willing for you to do that, sweetheart. And I'm right here and I'm listening. And we keep on offering that limit. We don't go, I've said no, and they're, and they're not listening. We don't expect that that we say that we offer this loving limit. And they go, of course, mom, I'm, I'm going to stop yeah. that straight away. <laughs> no, what they do is they start going, no, or they try to keep throwing the books or hitting the sibling or pulling the dog's tail. And that is not them 
you know, that's where we can often go into harsh ways of thinking or conditioned ways of thinking, you know, why aren't they listening or are they being disrespectful or they should just do, I say, and actually go into our aware parenting ways of thinking of like, great, this is working. And we need to just keep on offering that living limit. So those feelings move from the aggression into the expression so that they end up having this big, lovely tantrum where they're releasing, you talked about powerlessness earlier on, where they're releasing the powerlessness through this, this literally physically and emotionally releasing the tension from their bodies. And what happens is basically the more of their feelings we uh, hear, the more they get to express, the more we lovingly hear, the more calm and relaxed they feel in their bodies, the more we can see that, the more they make eye contact. They literally, you can see in their body, they feel relaxed. You can see it's easy for them to go to sleep. It's easy for them to sleep as long as they need. And that's this beautiful term that Lao has to, to be in balance. And it's beautiful. It's, and it's how children are designed to be. You know, it's, that is their true state. Yeah. I, this, oh gosh, there's so much to unpack there, Marion. <laughs> I was just like, ding, 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 ding. So much of that resonates with me. And I think a couple of points that I just wanted to touch on, I think, first of all, acknowledging the fact that in those kind of aggression states in particular, it is so incredibly hard, I think, for some, including myself, to just breathe and stay calm because you, because if I, I did physics <laughs> in high school and I, I, to me it always comes back to the physics of like if two moving cars are coming towards one another and you increase the speed of one and another, it's going to be a bigger impact, right? So I, I feel like that is, is what happens if you bring yelling and screaming and tension and more stress to a child who is already stressed and and aggressive and throwing books and things like that. I constantly have to remind myself when my daughter has big emotions that you have to remain calm because you need to be the rock and, you know, the North Star in this because if they see that you've flown off the handle, then they're going to feed off that energy as well right? So in your book, you touch on a couple of things for parents to be able to do in those moments. Who wants to describe them? Because I feel like I've kind of written them down on my hand. And so I have them with me at all times. Like, breathe, breathe, notice this, notice, <laughs> you know, because it's hard sometimes. It's really, it's very hard. And I think the first thing, and Marion and I talk about this all the time, we have to have so much compassion for ourselves as parents, right? Because firstly, we're parenting in a world at this moment that isn't supportive in the way that many of us want to parent. You know, we we don't do not live in villages and communities anymore in the way that we can share the load. Most of us are parenting at home by ourselves with our children. And, and you know, then we have the pressure of society to say, this is what parenting should look like. Your house should be clean and beautiful and your kids should be compliant and, you know, it should all be fabulous. And that means you're a good mother. So we've got all the social pressures that we take on board. And then we also have our own upbringing and how we were raised that's just sits pretty much under the surface of ourselves. And so then we have children and, and then that starts to bubble up. So I think to start with, we have to have so much compassion that we're actually kind of behind the eight ball, I think, before we even begin parenting, just 
because of the culture we're parenting in and the way that many of us were raised. And I think one of the big things to flag is most adults that I think Marion and I work with these days were raised in a behaviorism paradigm, which meant that, you know, we were taught from a very young age that in order to get love, you must be good, which yeah. means anger and tears and upsets weren't tolerated. Like, you know, you do what I say when I say, and if you do that, I'll reward you or I'll give you love or I'll give you attention. And if you are bad or you're upset or you talk back, then you might've got smacked or you might've got sent to your room. And, you know, this is what our world has been in, in this behaviorism paradigm for quite a long time. And so that is for many of us, that's our imprint around, you know, where, what happens when we are with a child who is angry or upset. So I think one of the first things, and I love how Marion often talks about this is she always invites people to think about what are you thinking? You know, so when our child is having a big tantrum or meltdown or hitting their sibling, one of the first things to really think about is, well, what am I making this mean? Like what's going on in my head? Cause if we have a belief system that says, why is my child so naughty or why are they making my life so hard or why won't they just listen? Then we're less likely to be empathetic with our children. We're less likely to see behind the behavior and go, I wonder what's going on for them. They're having a hard time because what's in the way is often what we're thinking and where our thoughts are. So as a starting place, you know, when we do get really frustrated, or we want to yell. I think the first step is just to remember, it doesn't make you a bad person. We are often just reacting because A, we are not getting our needs met, which means maybe we're tired. Maybe we're hungry. Maybe we're totally touched out for the day. Maybe we haven't had a break and therefore our fuse is shorter. Like I often joke, it's easy easy to be a great mother when you've had a full night's sleep and you just had a beautiful nutritious meal and you're not worried about money and you know everything's crazy right yeah yeah I'm like smashing this yeah peaches and cream over here baby (laughs) totally but when when we are when we're not at capacity, then it's very hard to often respond with empathy and compassion. So I think the first thing is sometimes we need to look at our needs. What needs do I need to meet on my own in order to be the parent I want to be? So that's the first place to start. And sometimes that we we get to a point of anger and rage. And I used to look at him for me, whenever I started to get to a point of yelling, that was my line where I was like, right, I need, I need time out. Like I need a break. I need, I'd say to my husband, that's it. I'm going away for the weekend or I'm out or that was the line where I've had too much. So, you know, I think when we react in those ways, do we firstly need to stop and pause and think, what is it that I'm needing here? to help me. I mean, the other thing that can often turn up and and we've touched on this and we talk a lot about it in the book is that our own wounds from our childhood and hurts will often surface in parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we like it or not, they're going to turn up at some point. And so particularly, you know, we see this a lot with women, you know, if we were raised to be very good girls, which means we didn't get angry and we didn't speak our truth and we just were, were good all the time, then often what can happen is when we become mothers and when we feel Feel powerless, and when we're not getting our needs met, then often this rage or anger comes out in a way that many have never experienced before. And we don't want to be directing it at our beautiful little children, but that's who we end up projecting it towards because we're feeling a lot of the feelings that we were never able to express when we were younger. And so, you know, we call it mother rage. And wow, we've both had serious mother rage. And I think everyone's had mother rage at some point. <laughs> and so that's another invitation to go, wow, where is this coming from? 
you know, what work do I need on my, for myself to delve into this, to, to look at what these feelings are. And that can be working with a therapist. It can be journaling. It can be having an empathy buddy, a listening partner. It can be doing many of our courses or things like that to help you understand or delve into why we are reacting that way. So they're kind of bigger picture things that we can look at, but in the actual moment when you're losing it with your kids, (laughs) well, of course we can always take a deep breath, but sometimes, you know, that, that feels hard. One of the things, well, a few tips that I offer, and like to do is to shake my body. Like I used to just like, if I'm standing in the kitchen and I'm starting to get angry, I just kind of shake my hands and shake my legs and, and just let my body know, I know you've got a hold of feelings here. I'm just going to shake them to help move some of it. Uh, One thing I often recommend to parents is to go into the bathroom and just wash your hands. Like just put cool water under your hands and look at yourself in the mirror and just say, this is not an emergency. Know, and I am the parent here and take a deep breath and cool down. Even if you've got your little people following you and they're climbing up your legs and, you know, <laughs> in that moment, what we're trying to do is remember I'm the parent here, you know, and my little one's having a hard time. And yes, I've got a hold of feelings going on, but I need to, um, I'm going to just try and put them to the side for the moment. I'm going to come back to them, but I'm just going to say, okay, what do we need to do here to meet these needs? So I think sometimes we need to we need to address what the mind is thinking we also need to address what the body's feeling to discharge some of that stuff so uh, in past sometimes when i've started to get really angry i'm like right we're going to do angry dancing and i put music on loudly and then yes. we dance angry and the kids think it's funny or sometimes i go and scream at a pillow or i've been known to go outside and get sticks and break sticks <laughs> just something oh, I like that I one <laughs> move the frustration of what I'm feeling so I'm not going to take it out on my my little ones but I, I think the thing is when when we are needing to do things like that in the moment I think it's a bit of an indication that there is some bigger stuff there that needs to be addressed and so the more work we can do in ourselves by therapy or joining different groups or those kind of things to understand the stories of where we've come from, where perhaps we never got our needs met, what needs to be expressed or what needs to be reparented, then we are less likely to turn up with that anger and frustration and aggression with our children because we are doing the deeper work. You know, I think that's the bigger picture of what we we often need to be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the fact that you touched on, you know, if you're hungry or you haven't slept, like, you know, as you said, if someone's made you a nutritious meal and you've had a full night's sleep, then we're less likely to have a short fuse. That is something that I think I learned the hard way, <laughs> obviously through motherhood, but I, I started to make sure that, you know, before I went into the, what I call the second shift, you know, after you've, when you go pick your kids up from school, so you've just done a full day's work and what have you, it's part of my routine now that if I've had a really big day or I didn't sleep the night before or whatever it is, that I finish at least half an hour early with my work. I go um, inside, I make myself a snack or a cup of tea or whatever it is, and I have a 10 or 15-minute power nap because I, you know, previously when we were in Melbourne, I was often um, parenting solo in the evening. And so I was like, if I'm going to be my best self and if I want to be the mum that I want to be, then I'm going to have to recharge. (laughs) And that's what it's going to have to take instead of doing this crazy, like, I'm so busy, I can't 
do anything and I'm just going to jump from meeting to meeting and, oh, yes, I have to now pick up my child and we're both going to be overtired, <laughs> need a snack. Oh, and we have to cook dinner as well and do the bedtime routine and that's not pretty um, going into it. So did any of you guys do that with your, like, did you have a plan when you went into your second shift of like, okay, this is my game plan, this is how I'm going to cope? Oh, I'm I'm a big fan of the nap. Like, oh, it's just, a game changer, but people I think, think it's luxury though, Lael. It's, um, I don't think it is. I think it's a necessity. Oh, I think I napped for like 14 years or something <laughs> because I just kept having children. And so when your little ones are babies, I would always rest when the baby rested. And then when they were toddlers, they were still having a rest. And then even, you know, as my kids got older, I would still often have that afternoon rest because I knew I had to do <laughs> parenting you know for me I guess I would always again try and meet my needs before I picked up my kids but I think one of the other things I did is I made sure that when I did pick up my children from school or kinder that I was really available for them for the first hour of them coming home and that's when we would do lots of rough and tumble play it's where I would listen to their feelings I would just make snacks and talk to them about their days or and I really was super super present so I wouldn't look at my phone I wouldn't return emails I wouldn't cook dinner I would just be with them because it, I really felt that when they had that re-anchoring to me, that grounding, they could process what their day was and it made the afternoon and the evening be wonderful. Whereas if they came home and we hadn't had that connection and they hadn't, if there were some feelings there they hadn't offloaded, then it became really challenging. So that was part of what I did as well is just know, okay, for a good hour here, I'm just going to be present. And that's what I, um, that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm doing here as, and that met my need and their needs as well. And, you know, it just, they created a lot more flow. I, I was known to often when I'd get up and make breakfast in the morning is make dinner at the same time. So oh, <laughs> many times when my kids were little, that's when a I would make dinner in the morning. And then, so I just didn't have to do, have that whole stress in the afternoon, you know, when I had three kids and baby and it was just tricky. So I used to make dinner at breakfast time. My husband used to be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I am being clever. Yes. That's what I'm doing. Right here. Yep. Work yep. smarter, not harder. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Like winter time comes, mm. slow cookers out at our house. Um, yeah. Straight after breakfast. I'm chopping up veggies and meat straight into slow cooker. Same thing. People are like, what's that smell? Like, what are we having for breakfast? And I was like, oh no, that's dinner. Oh wow, you're really organized. No, no. Just really smart about my time. That's okay. <laughs> Marion, did you have any comments to add about the second shift and things that you implemented to make your life a bit easier? Uh, I didn't have a, sh- a second shift because we did oh, homeschooling, yes. so my kids never went to school. But what I did do, because that has its own yeah. uh, challenges as well, is what I, I used to talk about sprinkling, sprinkling all throughout the day. So really, rather than waiting to have time away from our children to actually put things in place all throughout the day, like that might be like a, a dancing around the kitchen or having like a nice essential oil or you know having a bath. That might be all, I remember for me, my go-to you know, by the the evening, if I was feeling stretched and stresses, I'd get in the bath with with and usually with the children yeah. as well. They usually want to come in too. So, I really love that kind of sprinkling. The sprinkling really helped. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I love that. I just wanted to touch on that. Speaking of schools, and I didn't know this, Lael, but you started a school called Woodline Primary School. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind, okay, <laughs> because my daughter, she's just done kinder. She's starting prep this year. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm very, I, I think I'm a bit hyper aware around schools and things like that. And 
my goodness, people are already talking to me about, oh, what high school is she going to? And I'm like, let's just get through this year, shall we? <laughs> Can you talk us through Woodline Primary? Mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated by this. Mm-hmm. What is, what's the mission? What are the values there? What 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 does it look like there? Mm-hmm. It's pretty beautiful. Um, yeah, I can a, imagine. It's a- <laughs> It's a farm school, so it's in a little town called Ceres, which is just out of Geelong for anyone who knows Victoria. And we have like 20 acres there. And the school came about uh, and I built it with another woman, Mel. Uh, She was a client of mine and her son was starting school and she was just really like, I just, I don't like how it's really punitive. And he has to sit on the floor with his legs crossed and he gets his name put on the board if, you know, he's talking. And she's like, this just does not feel good. And everything you've taught me through a word parenting, like, like it just, you know, it feels like it's going to be undone. And so she's like, well, where is the school that really kind of meets those needs? And I was like, well, I don't know. I haven't come across it. And, yeah. you know, all my children went through kind of mainstream schooling. And so then she just proposed to me, what if we built our own school? And, you know, she had the money and the resources to do it. And she said, I'll fund it. You just build the school that you think should exist, which, you know, even as I tell wow. the story now, it's such a crazy thing that someone goes, yeah, come on, you just do, do this. And of course, I knew nothing about building a school because who builds schools? Not me, <laughs> like not normal people. So it was a huge, it took us three years to do it. It was a massive mission. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was an incredible opportunity to build something that I believed was what we need in our in our school system. So the philosophy is really around this is that it is that children need to feel emotionally safe and in order to learn, which is true. Children need to have their, know that their nervous system is calm and, and feels connected and that they have choice and autonomy and all the things that really children should have every day, but mm-hmm. often don't in order to then learn. So we built our school, so we've got a strong connection to nature, you know, so we have animals at our school that the children take care of. We have beautiful abundant veggie gardens that the children cook with every day. Most of our learning is done outside if we can. So we really encourage climbing trees and getting dirty and, you know, and, and being connected to nature. We have some really strong indigenous, beautiful influences in our school as well with some of the parents who support our school. And really, you know, we're a play-based learning school. So we really do focus again on learning through play and learning and, and learning that children all have different ways that they learn. So some use their bodies, some use their hands, some are happy to sit at the desk and write. And it's it's really all built on connection is we call our teachers guides. It's our guides getting to know the children of who they are, how they learn best. But really more than anything, it is we welcome all feelings at our school, you know, so that if a child is agitated or is having a hard time, that's not what are you doing and why are you disrupting and you're in trouble. It's like, what's going on for you and what do you need? Do you need to go and visit the pigs or do you need to go and have a swing or jump on the trampoline or do you need to have a chat with an adult and go for a stroll and talk about feelings or do you need to build something or like just really encouraging the children to tune into themselves and say, what is going on for me and what do I need? So my goal in building this school was that I want the children to finish at Woodline, firstly, having such a deep connection to themselves. So, you know, knowing who they are, knowing how they learn best, being able to identify what they're feeling, how they're feeling it, knowing there's healthy ways to express that. And they have the ability to ask for help if they need. And more than anything, know that they are a beautiful, amazing citizen of this earth and knowing how to take care of the earth and take care of each other. So, 
I think what we do at Woodline is pretty amazing. We have some incredible people who work there who really believe in this philosophy and vision. You know, I really believe it's the way if we do have formal schooling, how it should be. Uh, We have small classes. You know, we have what we call assistant guides in every room that are really there just to emotionally hold space for the kids if they need to. Yeah, it's pretty amazing some of the stuff that we're doing. It, um, you know, we have a lot of interest from people all over the world who want to come and see the school or build schools like it. And, and you know, we've only we're only in our third year this year, so you know wow. we're still very new. But I think what we've seen already in the two years just it's way better than what I ever dreamed it could be. And not that we. I mean, we are a school that has to, you know, we have compliance and we have to, we follow the Australian curriculum and we have to tick all the boxes like all schools do, but we just do it in our own creative way. And not that we're a school that focuses on data, but, you know, we have to collect data just for the government. But what we have seen already is our learning has kind of tripled where we thought our children would be. And so that has been, not that we were that was a measure for me. The measure was really emotionally how children were yeah. feeling and their well-being. But now actually seeing how profound their learning is is even an extra bonus, which makes sense, right? When kids feel safe, when they feel excited about learning, when they feel they have choice and autonomy, it makes a difference. Mm, 100%. It reminds me of this particular paragraph that I just wanted to read from the book. It just so resonates with me. And It's on, um, for all those playing at home, it's on page 73 and I don't know who wrote this bit, but it says, sometimes we forget that children are human beings too and that many things that are important to us are not important to them. Often we ask them to do things because of our needs or because of cultural conditioning and societal norms as well as our needs for their safety and well-being. None of these may be of any interest to them, which is so true. Mm -hmm. We have these conversations with our little people all the time and I think we forget that they are human beings. Like, Marion, you were talking about right off the bat, you know, the fact that sleep is not something that they learn. They have that innate ability to do that. We can't teach them. It's there. So if they're not tired, (laughs) you know, they're not going to go to sleep. So let's think about other ways of being able to support that and then they will drift off to sleep. You need to trust that, that they're instilled with that kind of that skill set. It's there. It's imprinted in their brain. We often have that as doulas when we're working with mums and, you know, the top two things that we assist with are breastfeeding support and sleep and It's something that the Possums Program with Pamela Douglas, who we have partnered with, it's just, you know, a philosophy that children will take the sleep that they need to take and there's no such thing as teaching them. And to me it speaks true to this aware parenting philosophy as well in the sense that children have got that imprint. Marion, have you got some comments around that? (laughs) Yeah, I want to say, you know, from an aware parenting perspective, we have a slightly different take on sleep to many other paradigms. So we we say, there's a little map that I made up based on aware parenting that that babies and children and adults need three things to sleep peacefully. They need to feel tired. I'm totally with you on that. And so often it's like, you know, I, I grew up in England. I remember, you know, children were put to bed at 
7 p.m. Yeah. or whatever it was, 6 p.m., I don't know, whatever. And in the, in the Northern Hemisphere there, it didn't get dark till 10 o'clock. So these all these children. Anyway, and you didn't have blackout curtains. You know, so <laughs> anyway, but that's just one of the things. But there are two other things. They also need to feel connected. And the way I talk about that is that's an innate, uh, again, survival need. You think about it in ancient times, if a, a baby or a, a small child uh, was on their own at night, they couldn't escape from saber-toothed mm-hmm. tigers. So if there wasn't someone close, if they didn't feel close, and that's either like right next to them or, you know, very close, they it wouldn't be safe to mm-hmm. go to sleep. It would be very advantageous for survival to be to stay alert and not sleep. And the third thing that's really different in aware parenting is really understanding that they also need to feel relaxed. And this is where we talk about often uh, in many parenting paradigms is the idea of doing things to make them feel relaxed. And these things can be really enjoyable, you know, like all the lovely things and the bath and blah, blah, blah. However, if you're doing all those things and your child or your baby or yourself are still like agitated and antsy and not going to sleep, what we say is that often it's because uh, we're working against their natural relaxation processes that they're born mm. with so that they actually know how to feel relaxed. And that's usually, again, why most of the people so often come because of the, the whole playing before bed. Playing before bed, again, is a way children try to release stress and trauma from mm-hmm. their bodies so that they can actually feel relaxed enough to sleep. So if your child's jumping on the bed and running around and being really silly and goofy and asking, you know, come and, you know, whatever you do, don't, da, 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 whatever. <laughs> and we, we're trying to calm them down. No, no, sweetheart, it's time for bed. No, we need to calm down. No. We're actually working against that. And uh, someone uh, I worked with many years ago said, she said, this is a rough quote, I'm so glad I don't believe anymore that as parents we need to force our child to feel relaxed before sleep that would be like trying to put an octopus in a tupperware box (laughs) and I love that because it basically trusting that children know how to feel relaxed and they will either do that through the same processes we talked about earlier on through play and laughing through also talking when they're older often teens and tweens but also through crying and raging so often if a child is constantly you know there we cut the Maybe they have sandwiches for dinner. Maybe you're stressed and you do sandwiches for dinner. Oh, no judgment like, here on that yes. one. <laughs> and I've done all kinds of things. Yes, many as a, as a solo parent for many years, I did all kinds of things <laughs> for dinner. But anyway, uh, and you've cut, you've cut the, the sandwiches into squares and they suddenly start having a really big cry because they wanted triangles or you know, what, for the bazillion reasons, or they're, you're telling them it's, you want them to go to sleep and suddenly they want you to read another book or all these other things. They want to go to the toilet for the 17th time. They are, they are trying to protect themselves from expressing their feelings. And basically if we, again, offer them a loving limit, I hear that sweetheart, really hear how disappointed you are that the, the sandwiches are in triangles, not squares. And I'm not willing to, to make any more right now. And they have a really big cry, apparently about the sandwiches or apparently about all these other pretexts. We call them the broken cookie phenomena, phenomenon in aware parenting, which is basically like us. You know, we often do this too. We get to the end of the day, maybe if you have a partner and they come home and or whatever, and they do one little thing and we have this massive reaction. Again, it's our system trying to offload the stresses of the day and of the year and the whatever. The children are constantly trying to do that. So in aware parenting, we see that if children are, if you're lying down next to a child, they are tired, 
They are connected, but they're wriggling around and they're taking an hour to go to sleep. That means they're not relaxed. And actually they know how to feel relaxed. And it probably isn't going to be through, you know, more singing and more books. It's probably going to be through actually supporting them a little bit earlier on to actually really play, to offer the loving limit, to have a big cry and a rage. And they actually feel true relaxation in the bodies. And what we find then is if children are really relaxed like that, then they can sleep for longer because they their systems aren't waking up to to express the feelings in the middle of the night over and over again. So having that list of three, again, can be a life changer for parents rather than going, oh my God, you know, I need to try and get my child to calm yeah. down. We can just cooperate with their, their innate wisdom. They know how to feel relaxed. We're just working against that because of our, as you talked about earlier, because of our own conditioning and our own hurts around, around that. Yeah. Can I just share something quickly? Yeah, um, please. That, you know, when, I didn't do this with my first two children. So when they were little, like babies and toddlers, I literally tried to trick them to go to sleep every time. <laughs> like I would take them for walks or put them in the pouch or in the car. Like it literally was this stress of how do I get them to sleep because I didn't know any of this information. Mm-hmm. And I look back and think that poor little beings were probably so wound up because I just didn't think crying was okay. And then with my third, when I understood this, you know, I would actually just, but for when she started to get tired, I would just hold her and go, do you need to have a little cry, my love? And I'm here and I'm listening. And she would have a little release or as she got older, we would do play. And then she would fall asleep so easily. And she slept way better than my other kids. Um, she was so much more relaxed in her body. Like it was it's such a game changer. I was like, oh, when you're starting to get upset and agitated before sleep, I'm just going to be here with you and be present. And just, and she would just move through it so easily. And then she'd be like, okay, I can sleep now. It was, it was yeah. beautiful. It made it, it was such a big shift from having to try and, you know, think it's not okay for my kids to be upset ever. And I've got to kind of trick them to go to sleep into seeing it a different way. Mm, definitely. I, we're experiencing that at the moment I can tell the end of last year my daughter started to kind of get a bit stressed about the fact that kinder was over and that she was starting prep and here in Tasmania kinder is at the same school as prep same uniform everything just different classroom but there was a lot of uncertainty around who her teacher was who's in the class oh my goodness I don't know where my class is and so you know we addressed that at the school and we went and visited the the prep room and and things like that but I can tell at the moment being on school holidays, there's this constant, particularly at bedtime, constant like chat about how many more days left in school holidays. And so like, I'll be like, oh, it's a couple of weeks. No, how many days? So I'll have to count them out as this many days. I'm I'm finished with kinder now. And she'll keep telling people, I'm finished with kinder now. I'm going to prep. And I can see that this is really bubbling at the surface. And I've noticed in the past couple of weeks that it's becoming incredibly difficult for her at bedtime to go to sleep. I was in the same (laughs) kind of pattern because you, Lau, in the beginning, I was like, oh my God, it's not okay for my kid to cry. What am I going to do? And then after a few years, I was like, oh, okay, I think I can be relaxed now. It's totally fine. And now we've started this cycle again where she's not a great sleeper or won't go to sleep like her usual time. And it was really interesting that you talk about that connection point, Marianne, because the other day I was working all day. She was with my parents and then I, you know, got to see her at dinner time and then we went into the bedtime routine. And so there wasn't that connection there when we went to the bedtime routine and it was a catastrophe. 
she cried for about an hour and it was over something really small, you know, as you say, that kind of cookie breaking phenomenon. And like, I'm sitting there going, that's not why she's crying. She's not crying because of that. And so I literally had to sit there the whole time with her or like we, you know, we we co-sleep when we go away to my parents' house. And so I just lay there with her the whole time and I was just like, just let it out, just let it out. And I just kept saying, is there anything else that's bothering you? She's like, I'm just sad, mum. And I was like, okay, that's okay. And then last night we started the, the tears again over something, you know, really small and she's got an obsession with rock, paper, scissors at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> we just went with it. And I just said to her, I, I I, was supportive in the crying, but equally I wanted to move it through to that expression kind of stage, not to go to aggression, into expression. So I said to her, do you want to play rock, paper, scissors? As we were lying in bed, you know, and she was like, yes. So we played rock, paper, scissors for like 10 minutes. And she had a good old time and she was giggling and she absolutely annihilated me with rock, paper, scissors. And then she was like, okay, night-night. And I was like, okay, night-night. And then we do like a little um, like meditation. It's called Big Time Explorers on the um, on the audio. And so she goes into dreamland and she fell asleep. But everything you're saying, and I've been reading in the book of the past couple of days and I'm like, my God, my child is textbook. (laughs) (laughs) She needs connection. She Mm. needs to release those emotions. And I anticipate that, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's all going to rear again when we start prep and there's that uncertainty and things like that. But I just wanted to ask very briefly, you know, final comments, and then we're going to do a very, very quick rapid fire because I know you've <laughs> we're on a time schedule here. But for parents who are in the thick of it right now, whether they're solo parenting, whether they're exhausted, whether they are in a relationship where maybe their partner is not on the same page with this, what are the very first, I guess, steps that they can take um, to kind of start to really tune in and support their children? It's a good question. Do you want to go, Marion? <laughs> yes, we always talk about it's so easy always to focus, isn't it? What what do I do to my child or what can I do for my child? And we always say in a way parenting, let alone particularly passionate about compassion yeah. for ourselves, is if we are not attending to our own, as Leo was talking about earlier, our thoughts, our feelings, our needs, if we're not attending there, it's really almost impossible to practice this form of parenting. So what we talk about is all the different ways of doing that. We talk about empathy buddies, which is basically getting someone else to uh, and regularly listening to each other, whether that's a set time that you meet every week and swap half an hour each, or nowadays often it's much more about meeting up on Voxer or WhatsApp or you know your app of choice and actually at any point in time leaving messages. So that when you are at that point where you're really frustrated or overwhelmed, that you can actually speak those feelings 
express them into into Mm -hmm. the app and to let them out to do that expression and basically what that means is we're far less likely then to say things we regret to our children or get to those points where we use power over or we we do things that we really don't want to do to our kids so that is so so vital and that might also be an aware parenting reaching out to an aware parenting instructor or doing a course or an immersion or something like that that you're basically getting that internal support that's always the first first step in aware parenting and then and then attending outwards and usually again attachment play is a really helpful place to start and we talk about uh, it's a very long-winded term non-directive child-centered play I call it present time and that's really basically regularly having slots of time where you're really just basically giving your full attention to your child when you're already your cup's a little bit full and actually being there, following their lead and really just trusting that they know what they need. And that might be starting off with like 10 minutes, putting the alarm on and saying, okay, I'm going to do 10 minutes, not starting with an hour, start with 10 minutes or five minutes, five minutes of, of that kind of play can transform a day, it can transform a child because they actually feel connected. It can help us feel connected to them and that, that kind of stress falls away and we can actually feel our love for them again. So I would say those can be two really helpful starting Mm. points and I would say too like you know this is I think it's good to remember that you know some of the philosophies of what we're talking about here are really foreign to a lot of people because of the way we were raised so I think we hearing the information many times is a good thing so you know we um you know, obviously we have a podcast, the Aware Parenting podcast, where we talk about all this stuff, which is great to listen to. And our book really covers a lot of what we're talking about in there as well. And talking to others who do it similarly makes a big difference as well to help. And, you know, we hear it often a lot where parents, uh, sorry, where perhaps one partner's on, you know, one person's on board and the partner isn't. And, and that can be challenging, you know, as we're starting to do it differently and it often can bring up feelings for, for everybody. And so we often just say, you know, get the support outside of yourself if you need first of other people and keep practicing and keep modeling and you know when I first bought this aware parenting to my husband I was like you know what I've read this book I think we need to listen to feelings he's like what he's like no <laughs> so, yeah let's give it a go and we did and we be, and he began to see the shift and change in the kids and he was like oh yeah okay get this this is amazing and then he was willing to do the work but he kind of had to see it first you know, in action. So yeah, it's a big, I think if anybody's curious and it resonates with you and it's okay if it doesn't, you know, it's, we are such big fans of following what feels right for you. Um, then, you know, there's a lot of information out there that you can sink your teeth into and, you know, there's a beautiful community that's growing around that people can connect in with as well. That's amazing. Okay, ladies, we're going to wrap up with our rapid fire (laughs) and either one of you can answer or both. First of all, what's your top tip for mothers? Mine is uh, get free from guilt. It's all cultural conditioning. We can get free from it. Yes, I love that. My top tip for mothers is is reach out for support. Okay. What is your go-to resource, whether it be um, a book or a workshop for birthing mothers? Mm. Well, I used to work in birth, so there's a lot. Look, I still love Ina May Gaskin's books are beautiful. Sarah Buckley's books are pretty amazing. I love the work of Rhea Dempsey. I trained with her. I also have an online birth program called About Birth Online, so you can check that out. You know, I think there's some amazing birth stuff out there these days for women to access. I mustn't say I'm totally up to date with all of it, but there's some beautiful stuff out there for, for women. I taught calm birth for a long time as well, so I think, you know, and ultimately learning to trust your body and listen to what your body wants. Mm-hmm. Mm. I would say similarly, I also taught calm birth and really passionate about, well, 
two things healing from our own birth experience i think that's the most pivotal because that's that's what we bring in and yeah again healing from our conditioning really understanding the cycle of intervention so that we actually know really make true choices about how we want to birth mm, so true and our final question that we always ask our guests and i borrowed this one from Brene brown what do you keep on your bedside table mm. Mm. I have got, I've got my red light machine. So I do my little red light machine every night before I go to sleep. And I also have about four journals because I have a, something called the willingness practice. It's part of my Marian method work and uh, a pen, which I, uh, so I do those every night and every morning. Oh. That's mm. it. I have um, like a stack of three books that I've been meaning to read forever that are still sitting there. Are you going to share them with us? Uh, I don't even know what one of two of them are called. They're like novels that someone gave <laughs> okay. me. I was like, oh, I'll read those in time. And I'm also reading Gabo Mate's book, The Myth of Normal. So that's sitting there at the moment. Yeah. I have a remote control for a fan because I'm currently navigating hot flushes, <laughs> perimenopausal. So okay. I am like constantly turning on my fan. <laughs> and um, uh, That's about it for me. That's all I've got on my table. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much, ladies. Where can the listeners find you? Obviously, I got the book online, but I'm assuming these are in bookstores as well. So you can buy it. Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. And I think in the next week or so, it'll be on most online book places like Booktopia and Book Depository and all those kind of places out there. So you should be able to find it in many online places. Did you ask where you can find us? Is yeah, where yeah. can we find you, do your courses? and <laughs> Well, our podcast is the Aware Parenting Podcast, so you can find us on Instagram at that or just search the Aware Parenting Podcast. Uh, you can find me at laylstone.com.au. So I've got my online courses and stuff there and my school is at woodlineprimary.com.au. What about you, Marion? Mm, yes, my website's marionrose.net. I have lots of online courses there as well and um yeah, social media, usual things, Marion Rose. Thank you so much. This has been such a beautiful conversation with the two of you. I'm so excited to see what happens next with both of you as well. I feel like there may be another book in the <laughs> in the midst because this book has really, really resonated with me. As I said, I was reading it going, yeah, yep, that's happening. Okay, that's how I deal with that now. Great, <laughs> excellent. Done. <laughs> I love those things. All right, mm. then. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we'll see you. Thanks for having us, Renee. Thank you, mm. thank you so much, Renee. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.